0: Uh, Let's pray as we approach the word. Lord, thank you for your mighty, awesome word. What a privilege it is to have it, to read and study together. Thank you that it is powerful for changing us. Use it this morning, Lord. Empower it by your spirit. Open our minds and our hearts to understand and to do your word. In Jesus' name we pray it. Amen. Well, for a year and a half or so, we've been studying the Gospel of Luke. Learning all about Jesus and how he trained his disciples and all the things he taught and did in parables over the three and a half or four years that he walked on earth among men. Today we come to the very end, the last passage in Luke. So hold on to your hats. I have to sum up the whole book for us today, so hope you're ready for that. In this passage, Jesus really brings together, though, his whole ministry, what he came for. He came to die for our sins. We know that. That's marvelous. That's wonderful. That's the good news. But really, he came for more than that. He came to establish the kingdom of God. Way back in early in his ministry... The disciples were trying to get him to to do a certain thing, and he said, no, I must go to the other cities as well to preach the kingdom of God, because that is why I came. And during his years on earth, he taught about what the kingdom of God was all about. He established a new community, and that's what we'll see this morning. But the setting begins in verse 36 of chapter 24 of Luke with the disciples gathered in a room, and John tells us the door was locked. And these disciples are terrified. For good reason. They had given up everything to follow Jesus. They had come to believe that he was the Messiah, the one who would establish this earthly kingdom, who would reign as king over Yahweh's, God's kingdom. And yet... 3 days before the one they thought was the messiah had been killed as a common criminal at best what could they think he was now except maybe a good prophet of god a lot of the prophets were killed i guess that's what he was too certainly couldn't be messiah cuz he's dead and the disciples must have been wondering what's going to happen to us now they were terrified it like i said john said but for fear of the jews They'd rounded up Jesus and killed him. They were probably next. And what about our lives? We've spent four years following this man. We gave up everything. Now what? Were we fools? Were we just deceived by him? The despair and the fear, the terror they must have felt must have been awful. The disciples were afraid, and I've come to see that fear is really a major part of all our existences as human beings. We're afraid too. We've come to see that much of what we do as human beings is motivated by fear. The scriptures reflect this. Way back at the beginning, Adam and Eve remember Adam's first recorded words after they'd sinned? Good apple, huh? No, that's not what he said. <laughs> he said, Jesus, or the Lord confronted him, and Adam said, I heard the sound of you walking in the garden, and I was afraid, so I hid. And ever since then, man has been afraid. Because of our own sinfulness, we're afraid of rejection, we're afraid of being seen, we're afraid that if anyone really knows who we are, we would be rejected forever. Dr. Larry Crabb, in his book Encouragement, says this, Adam's legacy to his children includes fear. Adam was afraid, and so are we. Fear is the core emotion in the human personality. Romans 8 says that we are slaves of fear all our lives. Hebrews 2.15 says through the fear of death, we are subject to slavery all our lives. You see, we're people who are consumed in our lives by fear. For so long as a Christian, I was a good guy. And over time, God has begun to reveal to me why I was such a good guy. It wasn't just because that was the Lord doing a great work in me. He was at work. But I began to see that I was a good guy so that you wouldn't reject me. If I'm a good guy, you'll think I'm wonderful. So much of what we do deep down is motivated by fear. We're enslaved to it, the scriptures say. We know that God doesn't want us to live by fear, but how can we change? How can we begin to be different and live with peop- as people that are free, free to follow the Lord, free to serve Him, free to not be controlled by fear, but free to live boldly, courageously for the Lord. Well, our passage begins with the disciples afraid, but it ends in verse 52 and 53. Let me read these. And they worshiped Him, and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple praising God. Do you get that? The passage began with them afraid in their upper in this room, terrified to be seen by anyone. And it ends with them publicly continuously in the most public place in Jerusalem in the temple praising God, worshiping him. What happened? What set them free? What happened during those 40 days after Jesus rose from the dead that transformed those people? Because if we can get a grasp on that, we can see what will transform us and set us free from being people of fear to being people of courage. Well, you know what happened? They finally came to know Jesus as he truly was. Simple, but profound. They finally came to know Jesus as he truly was. Not some dead prophet, but as king of kings. Jesus said in John 14 in the upper room, have I been with you so long and still you do not know me? He took those 40 days after he rose from the grave to teach them who he truly was and that transformed their lives. And as you go on in the book of Acts and you begin to see how these disciples lived, They lived boldly for Christ. Every one of them, as far as we know, according to tradition, died a martyr's death, except one. Incredible change. So let's look what they learned about Jesus that transformed their lives. First truth comes in verses 36 through 43, where they personally came to know him as their risen Messiah, not as a dead prophet but as the risen Messiah. Let me read those verses. And while they were telling these things, now to set the stage, they're in this room. Cleopas and the other disciple with him who'd been on the road to Emmaus, Chris talked about that last week, had come back and said, we've seen the Lord. And they said, well, Simon has too, but they still didn't know what to think. While they were telling these things, he himself stood in their midst and said, peace be to you. They were in a locked room. Jesus suddenly appeared in his risen body. And it says, But they were startled and frightened. The words are really terrified. And thought they were seeing a spirit or a ghost. And he said to them, Why are you troubled and why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see. And the word for touch there is really grope. Grab me. Hang on to me. Hold me and see that it is really me. For a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still could not believe it for joy and were marveling, he said to them, have you anything here to eat? And they gave him a piece of broiled fish and he took it and ate it before them. They were terrified. They thought, well, you know, we've heard of these guys said they saw him, but it must have been a ghost. It must have been a spirit like Samuel, when King Saul in the Old Testament raised him from the dead. Can you imagine what happened when he appeared and he said, see me and touch me, and they began to touch him and realize, well, he has a physical body, but yet he just appeared. This is nothing like anything in our experience. He isn't just a resuscitated, like Lazarus, a dead body that just was raised from the dead, but it's just going to die again. There's something different about this. You can touch it. But it can walk through walls. It can appear and disappear. It can eat, but doesn't have to eat. Jesus says, I am living. I have my spiritual body. And how exciting that you and I one day will have the same kind of body. One that's not bound by this physical world. One that's able to do all the things that we've always longed to do and haven't been able to because we're trapped in this fallen, sinful body in which we all live. So Jesus goes out of his way to prove to them he's risen. He's re- he has a spiritual spiritual body in every way. Touch me, see me, watch me eat. The historian, Alfred Edersheim, great historian, said, the resurrection is the best established fact in history. Even the liberal historians and Jesus Seminar people, they don't know what to do with the way the disciples were transformed when they went from cowering, cringing cowards to the bold proclaimers of the gospel of Acts that have changed our world. They can't figure it out. My own dad rejected Christ for 70 years. And we were talking in the last couple of years and he said, you know, I've realized the only important thing in life is getting right with God. And I know that the only true God is Jesus. You know how I know? Because there's no way the resurrection didn't happen when you look at what happened to the disciples. My dad says, I don't know about those other miracles in the scripture. I don't know, but the resurrection absolutely is true. There's no doubt. And now he's a believer after 70 years of rejecting Christ. It's true. It's real. And the disciples saw that finally he is our risen Lord, our risen Messiah, the one we've been waiting for, the one we thought he was. And he's risen from the grave. They came personally to know him as their risen Messiah. Secondly, they began to see him as the fulfillment of all of the hopes and longings of their heart. Let's look at that, verse 44 through 48. Now he said to them, These are my words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things which are written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures, and he said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and rise again from the dead the third day, and that repentance for forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all the nations beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. Now, as we read this here in the end of Luke, it sounds like Jesus appeared to them, started teaching, and opened up the scriptures to them. But Luke goes on in part two of his story in Acts. And in the beginning of Acts, he says in verse three, To these also he presented himself alive after his suffering by many convincing proofs, appearing to them over a period of forty days and speaking of the things concerning the kingdom of God. Can you imagine what those 40 days must have been like? Jesus sitting down with them, opening up the scriptures, going through the entire Old Testament and explaining how he was the fulfillment of everything there. And you need to understand as he's describing that, he's saying, I'm not just the fulfillment of the passages about Messiah coming. I'm the fulfillment of everything that's promised in the Old Testament. All the hope of Israel. The kingdom of God that Jesus had been teaching all along. What was that kingdom about? What does the Old Testament describe as the coming kingdom? Well, it talks about, and this is the hope of Israel, this is what the disciples were longing for. That someday, Yahweh, God Himself, would return. Now remember, at this point, they'd been in exile essentially and and oppressed for 600 years since the Babylonians came in in 586 B.C. and wiped out the entire nation of Israel. Now some had come back from exile from Babylon 70 years later, but they were still under domination of the Persians and then the Greeks and then the Romans at this point. They're longing for the king to be reestablished. There'd never been a king again. They were looking for this kingdom to come. When Yahweh would come, set up the Messiah as king, and it would be a day, the Old Testament tells us, of marvelous peace, of a relationship with God where there's no impediments, no need any longer for a priest to teach you, because everyone would know him. It would be a time when the Spirit would be poured out It would be a time when there would be no more barrier between God and man because there would be true forgiveness of sins in this new kingdom. A place of shalom, a place of delight. Evil would be defeated. And most important of all, the promises of the Old Testament, he would be our God and we would be his people. So Israel's hoping for that kingdom to be established. Now they thought it would be the Messiah coming having a big army, throwing out the Romans, you know, and setting up the kingdom now on earth. And Jesus begins to teach them in those 40 days, well, that's not quite it. It's a spiritual kingdom. It's a kingdom where I am king and I reign, but all those longings you've had to be at peace, to have life, to have fulfillment, are fulfilled in me, in my presence with you in my intimacy with you. All of these things he teaches them, and Luke just summarizes it here in those 40 days, about him being the suffering servant, the one who would come and become king, that the way to God would finally be open, that there would be forgiveness of sins as we repent and turn to him, promised in Jeremiah and Ezekiel, Isaiah, and throughout the Old Testament. Even the whole sacrificial system, the only way to get right with God was to kill a lamb and... Kill a bull and kill goats and try to keep sacrificing so you could deal with your sin. Jesus is the fulfillment of all of that because he gave us the sacrifice once for all to deal with our sin. And that he would create a new people, a new remnant, a remnant that wouldn't consist of just Israel but would be all the nations being included. So as Israel's waiting for this promised hope, they're waiting for the King. And Jesus says, I, the risen Lord, in the fulfillment of all that that you've longed for, I am creating the new community and it's you, <laughs> the disciples and all those who believe in, through them. He was all that the Jews had been waiting for and he's all that we've been longing for all our lives. Ecclesiastes describes mankind as a driven people, toiling, striving after wind, Ecclesiastes says, because we're longing to to fill up our lives with something that will satisfy. All of us are longing to to be filled with something. What, What drives you? What drives you? I have a friend who told me he had slept with He counted up one time 152 different women driven to try to find some satisfaction. Finally came to Christ and realized that wasn't what he was looking for all along. Yet we as Christians too can be driven trying to fill our lives with something, looking for that shalom, looking for that place of rest in our lives. And what the disciples learned is what we need to learn, that Jesus is all that we've longed for, all that we've been waiting for all our lives, the happiness, the fulfillment, the life. Yes, it's true. It'll be ultimately completely fulfilled in heaven. That's true. And the kingdom will be marvelous when that comes. But we can experience it now. He is our eternal life, that we begin to walk in now with him. Then finally, verse or again, in verse 49, the disciples learned something else. Not only was he all that they'd longed for all along, but verse 49, And behold, I am sending forth the promise of my Father upon you, but you are to stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. What is this power they were waiting for? The Holy Spirit. They came to know him as their ever-present power for life. The Spirit is just Jesus' presence in us. In fact, the Scriptures interchangeably talk about the Spirit of Christ, the Holy Spirit. Christ in you, the hope of glory. What is that? It's the Holy Spirit who comes to live inside us, to empower us for life. It's Christ's presence with us every moment. Jesus said, hey, it will be better when I'm no longer walking on earth because you'll have me living inside you. You'll have my presence with you everywhere you go. And secondly, you'll have my power with you to live life by everywhere you go. He's with us forever. He'll never leave us or forsake us. He's the present power for life every moment. And he empowers us as we learn to depend on him. Now, I know some of you out there are thinking, power? (laughs) I don't see the Holy Spirit's power in my life. You say, I have the Spirit, but where's the power? And we get confused. We get fooled because we think spiritual power is laying your hands on somebody and healing them, doing something supernatural that, that is visible and everybody can see it, speaking in tongues or whatever. Our world's so confused about what spiritual power is. Some of those things happened in the book of Acts. But you know what the New Testament teaches is real power, the power of the Spirit at work in our lives? It's the power of self-discipline. The power to say no to sin when you're tempted. When Satan throws something at you. The power to say, no, I don't have to give in to that. The power to be bold witnesses when you're at work and you're, you yourself are scared, terrified. And yet you feel the power of the Spirit allowing you to share the truth of the gospel with that coworker at the water fountain or in the break room or that friend over the phone. That's the power of the Spirit. That's not you. When some of you are traveling on trips and you're able to sit in your motel room alone and the temptation comes to flip on that dial, that cable station that you know is immoral, and you say, no, I'm not going to do that. It's a battle, but I will not do that. That's the power of the Spirit at work. When you're dissatisfied in your marriage and you're tempted to begin to fantasize about another man or another woman, it's the power of the Spirit that allows you to say, no, thank you for my spouse. It's the power of the Spirit that allows you, when you begin to read the Word, to understand what it says and have it begin to change your life. It's the Spirit, Jesus said, who will lead you into all the truth. He told the disciples that. He does the same for us. No way you could understand this book unless the Spirit was at work. You see, the power of the Spirit is at work every day, protecting us, praying for us, guiding us, giving us self-discipline to to be able to say no to sin, and maybe most important of all, giving us the power to say no to ourselves and to reach out in love to others. Remember what Paul told Timothy? He said, For God has not given us a spirit of timidity, but a spirit of power and love and self discipline. No way self centered creatures like us, sinful creatures, would step out to care for another person and love them without the Spirit working in His power in us. No way the Ivans would be going to China, the Armstrongs to Indonesia, and all our field staff and missionaries without the Spirit of God moving them. No way some of you would be moved to support them in their ministries unless the Spirit of God is at work. Spirit of God is at work. It's not necessarily flashy. But Jesus says, I am with you in the power of the Spirit, inside you, guiding you, forming the new community, creating oneness and power in your lives to deal with sin. So the disciples came to know him as their ever-present power for life. Jesus says, just wait, and the Spirit will come upon you. Verse 50, they came to know him as their high priest. And he led them out as far as Bethany, and he lifted up his hands and blessed them. Why did Jesus do that? Highly symbolic. The only ones that would do that were the high priests, the the priests of the Old Testament. They were told to bless the people. The Lord bless you and keep you, number six. The Lord causes face to shine upon you. The Lord be gracious to you. The Lord causes countenance to lift upon you. And may he give you shalom, peace. And in the temple, that's what the the priests did. They would lift their hands and bless the people. And in synagogues today, the priest, if there's a priest present at the service, he will do the same thing and recite that same blessing. So Jesus does that to show to the disciples that he now is their great high priest. He's the one that will give them access to God. And notice he takes them out to Bethany, out on the Mount of Olives. He's not in the temple. You don't need the temple anymore. The whole book of Luke begins, remember, in the temple with Zechariah, the father of John the Baptist, going in to burn incense because he was a priest. That was the place you worshipped God. That was where the priest would give you access to God, only through the temple, only through a priest. Now Jesus says, I'm the high priest, now you have access. We don't know if it was one of the disciples or who it was who wrote the book of Hebrews, but he picks up on this very truth of who Jesus is as our high priest. And in chapter 4 of Hebrews... Verse verse 14, he says this, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore draw near with confidence to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy, and may find grace to help us in our time of need. They came to know him as their high priest. In verse 51, they came to know him as the king of kings. And it came about that while he was blessing them, he parted from them. My translation stops there, but it's better. He parted from them and was carried up into heaven. The ascension. We don't talk a lot about the ascension, but the ascension was Jesus ascending the very throne of heaven, the very throne that's talked about in Daniel 7, where it says, When like a son of man was coming, he came up to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away, and his kingdom is one, which will not be destroyed. Jesus took that throne and ascended and is now king of kings. He reigns. He he upholds the entire universe by his power, we're told, in the book of Hebrews. You can trust him as your Lord because he's the ascended king of kings. Oswald Chambers says this about the ascension. There's now freedom of access for anyone straight to the very throne of God by the ascension of the Son of Man. Jesus sits in absolute full power. As Son of Man, Jesus Christ has all power at the throne of God. He is King of kings and Lord of lords from the day of His ascension until now. His kingdom's a secret one, working in the hearts of men, bringing people of all nations to Him. But He's a king and He reigns. Does he reign in your life? Does he reign in mine? <laughs> now we're back to verse the end verses, 52 and 53. Where it says, And they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy. Again, that's significant. It's the first time ever Jesus was worshipped by them. And a good, righteous Jew, a good Jew, would never worship anyone except Yahweh himself. They've come to realize something about Jesus. As they spent those 40 days studying the scriptures and watching him and seeing him in his resurrected body, they began to see that he isn't just a good buddy. (laughs) He's God himself. Yahweh, the creator, the maker of the universe. They came to know him as their God. Again, as I said, the book of Luke begins in the temple with the old covenant in place, people waiting for the Messiah, wondering what was going to happen. The old covenant couldn't satisfy the people. And the book ends with a new kingdom in place. Outside the temple, Jesus reigns. Ears, this temple was destroyed. Because it wasn't needed anymore. There was a new kingdom in place. You didn't need the temple anymore to come to God. It ends in the temple, it says, though, with them continually praising God. The common people now, not a priest, but the common fishermen, the disciples, worshiping him, realizing that now they're the new community. They're the people of God the new community that's been transformed from cringing cowards into bold proclaimers of the gospel. What changed them? They finally saw who Jesus really was. Not a dead prophet, not a Messiah of an earthly kingdom yet, but the true King of kings and Lord of lords. What's your view of Jesus? Kind of your buddy that You pray too now and then, but really doesn't affect your life very much. That's not really very real to you somehow. That's why you live in fear. That's why I live in fear. You see, to be transformed, we need to catch a vision of who Jesus truly, really is. God himself, Lord of Lords, our high priest. The one who came and dealt with our sins so we have free access into the very presence of of God Himself. We need a fresh, clear vision of Him. Are you a fearful person? I know you are, (laughs) because you're human like me. You need to see Him. Know Him better. Get to know Him as He truly is. Not who you think He is, not who you want Him to be, but as He truly is. Again, Oswald Chambers, being saved and seeing Jesus are not the same thing, Many are partakers of God's grace who have never really seen Jesus. When once you've seen Jesus, you can never be the same. Other things do not appeal as they used to. Always distinguish between what you see Jesus to be and what he has done for you. If you only know what he's done for you, you don't have a big enough God. But if you have had a vision of Jesus as he is... Experiences can come and go, and you will endure as seeing Him who is invisible. Have you seen Jesus as He truly is, as the disciples did, and were transformed by it? That's what will change our lives. Not therapy. Seeing Him. As the little chorus says, turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in His wonderful face. And the things of earth will go grow strangely dim in the light of His glory and His grace. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, King of kings, our high priest, Lord of lords, the risen Messiah, the fulfillment of all we long for, the fulfillment of all the promises of God, our God, our King. We worship you. Lord, open our eyes to see you as you really are. Help us to know you for not what we think you are, but for what you truly are. As you open the minds of the disciples, open our minds and our hearts to see you and know you. Lord, transform us. Thank you for the power of the Spirit in our lives. Help us not grieve the Spirit, but to walk by that very power that you've given us acknowledging You, keeping our eyes on You, seeing You for who You truly truly are. We worship You, Lord Jesus. We worship You and praise Your name. Thank You for making us part of the new community, the new kingdom that You've established that is growing and changing lives all over the world. Thank You in Jesus' name, Lord of Lords, King of Kings, we pray these things. Amen.